You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To the law codes. That's really exciting. The law codes. Now, the law codes are probably some, somewhere where most of us get stuck. Either we get stuck because we can't stand to read them anymore, or we, can't, we don't know what to do with them. And so I cannot give you a definitive answer on the law codes, but I'll try and talk a little bit about them. I actually had a friend who came from a, um, a background where he was raised with almost no rules or no laws. He was very, um, his parents didn't discipline him, you know, his broken marriages. So he came to faith and he loved the law codes and he wanted to follow them because it gave his life structure and meaning and the way to, he would know what to eat and what not to eat. And, was, uh, you know, when to have sex with his wife and not, and it was just like, okay, I don't think those law codes are supposed to be used that specifically. But uh, that was, for him, that was very helpful. But I want want to try and explain a little bit about the law codes. So the Old Testament contains about 600 commandments. So that's a lot of codes. And the Israelites were expected to keep them as evidence of their loyalty to God. So they were actual laws that people had to follow. And the Old Testament law is part of of a covenant with God, where God said, this is what I'm going to do, this is what you need to do, and this will happen. And I'll talk a little bit more about covenants a little later on and what Old Testament covenants were like. So some of the Old Testament laws have clearly not been renewed in the New Testament. And I want to explain a little bit about that. Now, again, different people have different perspectives on how the Old Testament laws should apply today. So I'm going to give you what I think, but I'm not going to say that it's the right answer. But it is a problem for the church because Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, but yet he didn't follow some of the laws himself. So what does that mean for us? So part of the Old Covenant of the Old Testament laws are renewed in the New Testament. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking some of the Old Testament laws, particularly the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, hey, the old, in the old way it said, do not murder, but I say, you know, do not even hate your brother. So many of the Old Testament laws are renewed in the New Testament. They're repeated, they're reminded, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, laws like that. But... The Old Testament is the Old Testament is not the testament for Christians. So it's not our primary law code law book. The New Testament functions as that for the Christian. But the Old Testament is still the word of God for us, even though it's not the command of God to us. So again, that's the distinction. It's still the word of God, but it's not the command of God. So we don't go to the Old Testament food laws and say, This is how I should eat. But it still reveals who God is and reveals what God cares about. And one way I know we don't go to the Old Testament and look at the food laws is, do you remember the vision that Peter had? And that vision had all the food that he wasn't allowed to eat and it said, eat it. Right? So that's how I know those Old Testament food laws don't apply. And yet I know the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath law applies because it's repeated in the New Testament. So the New Testament is a commandment for Christians. Um, so only what is explicitly renewed in the, from Old Testament law in the New Testament can be considered commands for the Christian. 
but it, we can still learn from the Old Testament law code. Now, I probably would make an exception to the Ten Commandments. They are all repeated in the New Testament, but the Ten Commandments are unique. They are not part of this covenant. There's no if-then um, formula like you'll see in covenants. They are absolute laws, and they are unique in the ancient Near East. And so I would say the Ten Commandments I would see as, slight, as quite significantly different than the other Old Testament laws. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about ancient treaties so you can understand a little bit better about the law code in the, New in the Old Testament. So in the ancient Near East, there, was, there were treaties that were made between the ruler and those under him. And they are called suzerain treaties, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N. And it was a treaty between the kings and maybe underlings, like under princes or the kings and the people. And these treaties had, had a, they, 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 they were about honoring boundaries. So this is my land, this is your land, this is what you can do in my land. They helped with maintaining trade relations and they dealt with returning runaway slaves. So they were, they were treaties that were common in the ancient Near East that everyone would know. And so what it appears that God did is he took, he said, okay, you guys understand these suzerain treaties, so I'm going to make one with you. And this is what it's going to look like. So the pattern, especially of Deuteronomy, follows these old treaties and says, hey, this is my treaty with you guys. Do you understand this? I'm going to make it. So the, these treaties are preserved. You can find them in the Mari tablets, in the Amarna texts, and they're drafted between the superior, the king, and those who are under him, the inferior. In Deuteronomy, you can see it as God and the Israelites. So they were, they were, if there, there was a good relationship between the king and his subjects, they was, it used family terms, terms like father and son. If there wasn't a good relationship, they might use lord and servant, or king and vassal, or greater king and lesser king. So father and son was a familial term, which you won't actually find in the Old Testament very much. It tends to be used more lord and servant in the Old Testament, which is interesting. But... Um, so the lesser lord, who the covenant was made with, or the prince, he would represent all his people. And so it would be a covenant between the king and the lesser lord to, to rule the people under them. And he, the ruler, the lesser prince, would enforce the treaty with all the people under him. So this treaty had four main parts. And the first part we call the preamble. And so the preamble would identify the king, the suzerain, and by his names and titles. You know, oh, great and mighty king or the Lord God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and then it would, it, would go, it would describe how the suzerain or the king dealt with his vassals. So it would go through a history, and then I did this for you, and then I did this for you, and then I did this for you. So again, you'll see that in Deuteronomy. In the preamble, God will say, you know, you know I am the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I took you out of Egypt, and I took you through the Red Sea. And so there will be this long description about what God did for Israel in the preamble. And um, the purpose of this preamble was to show how much those under the king owed the king. So it put, put them in this position where they actually should obey because the king had been so good to them. And it would, so again, in the, New Test, in the Old Testament covenant with the Lord, you'll see the Lord describing what he did and why Israel owes him and why they need to do what's in the covenant. 
Then the next part of the co this covenant or this law would be a stipulation. And the stipulations would be basically what does the person have to do. So here are the rules that you have to follow. And, um, and so there, all the rules would be listed. And then there would be usually a requirement that the vassal or the person under the king get their copy of the treaty and put it in the temple and where they had to read it and study it and refresh their memory. So does anyone know where the Israelites kept their copy of the law? Yeah, the, I heard someone say the Ark of the Covenant. So that was their place where they stored the law. They're supposed to pull it out, read it, and study it, and follow it. Okay. The next part of the Old Testament treaty was the blessings and the curses. And so in the blessings, they would say, if you follow this law, these great things are going to happen to you. If you don't follow it, I'm going to get you. And so again, if you read the Old Testament covenant, you'll see that. God says, you know, if Israel follows me, then I'll bless them and their land will produce whatever amazing things. But if they don't, I'm going to let other nations come in and take them over. So that was the blessings and the curses. And then finally, the last part of the treaty would be, they would take the treaty and they'd have a ceremony where they'd have these animals and they'd cut the bodies of the animals in half and there would be, and then they'd divide them and then the two groups would walk through the pieces of animals through the middle and that would ratify the treaty. And it would be an example of what would happen to them if they didn't follow it. <laughs> it'd be cut in half. So if you look at the biblical covenant... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so finally, often these covenants would have witnesses. So they'd call to the witnesses who would say, yeah, I heard this treaty was ratified, and this is what happened. So a great example of this is found in the covenant that God made with Israel in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. It's outlined. Again, it wasn't originally made. It's a repeat of it. So in Deuteronomy um, 29:15, I'm going to read you the blessings and the curses, and you can hear them. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, so this is the list of stipulations, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, decrees and laws, then you will live and increase the promise. And the Lord will bless you in the land you're entering in to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away about unto other gods and worship them, and now is a curse. As I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. You're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Okay, so there's the stipulations you can hear in there and the blessings and the curses. And if you go back in 29, you'll also see the preamble where God says, this is what I did for you. And then finally, the witnesses. At the end of this chapter, it says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life, death, blessings, and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So the witnesses are actually the heavens and the earth. You would not want the heavens and the earth being witnesses against you. <laughs> but this, so the, this Old Testament treaty, the way the treaties were written was repeated. That was what was familiar to the people, the Jewish people. They understood those treaties, and God used that kind of treaty to to um, guide them and to lead them into the promised land. So it, that helps you as you read the Old Testament laws to see how that fits. And a lot of them are those stipulations and they'll go over and over and over the stipulations. Now a way to understand them from a New Testament perspective, because the Old Testament people would not divide them up this way, but I'm going to divide them up this way just so you can understand them. 
they would have seen them all as just as important and you couldn't split them up. So just want to be clear. But there's ceremonial laws. Those are the laws to say, how do we worship? What kind of position should your body be in when you worship? You know, how should you wash before you worship? How should you offer sacrifices in worship? So there's quite a, few, quite a huge amount of laws that teach them how to worship. What are the rules for approaching God and coming before God? Again, those rules are not repeated in the New Testament, and actually they're actually broken in the New Testament, right? Because in the Old Covenant you worship this way, but now you'll worship in spirit and truth, right? So they're very different. That Those laws are definitely not observed in the New Testament. Second, there's civil laws. Like, how do you run a country? How does this work? We're the nation of Israel. What are our laws? So similar to the Canadian law code, those would be the laws. Again, those are not repeated in the New Testament because they are very specific laws for a specific time in Israel and, and how they related to each other and to the nation. So, for instance, they would say, you know, after whatever, in the year of Jubilee, let all your slaves go free. And then they, you know, don't, um, sell your land that God has given you. There are lots of laws that fit into those things that wouldn't apply to us today. And then finally, there are moral laws, how to be in right relationship with God and with other people. Many of those moral laws are repeated in the New Testament and are laws for us. So that is a really quick summary of the Old Testament laws. Don't try and so they're not, again, commands for us. They're not instructions to read and go, oh, I need to do this and follow this. But many of them are repeated in the New Testament. I think one thing, one big picture thing you can see from the Old Testament laws is that God actually cares about all of our life. He cares about how we relate to him. He cares that we follow him and listen to him. Nothing is, so for instance, I've heard people say, oh, God doesn't really care about our sexuality. We can go do whatever we want. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you could know pretty well that God pretty much cares about our sexuality. Like, there's a lot of laws, and it's a big issue for God. Um, he cares about what we do with our bodies. You can see that by the food laws. Our, we're not separate. Our bodies are not separate from our spirit. Our whole life and all we are and how we connect with God is important to God. Mm -hmm. One of the, This is where I get one of the concerns, and, and I... I uh, really enjoy trying to put it together and when you read a piece that connects from here to here to here and finally connects in, in Revelations and you go, wow. But how is it or why is it that certain uh, religions or even certain churches within a religion take some things so literally like for instance, a friend of mine goes to a church and they don't believe in, in uh, earrings mm -hmm. because they, they say that that's body piercing and that the Lord speaks specifically to not, they don't believe in tattooing because they say that they the Lord believes, or sorry, they say that the Lord says you're not to do anything to the body. Hmm. Yet you, you take other... Like you'll go into some other churches and you, you won't see a woman in a, or in pants, always mm -hmm. a skirt. You go into a different church, like we were in a, an alliance church actually, and I think every woman had long hair. Really? Alliance because, church? For all yeah, women? because they still have a part of that old, Yeah. it was up, up country, but they still have a part of that old 
where in the Bible it says that women should not cut their hair. Right. So I'm going to leave. Those are great questions, but those are really more New Testament interpretation <laughs> questions. So I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. <laughs> okay, but, but what I'm getting at is where do we draw the line? Like, and again, I think that part of what we're trying to help you do is to look, look at, have a way of looking at text and making decisions on that and how, what, how those things apply. It is difficult. Those are not easy interpretation issues. But I think, again, I would say the history of the church is something we need to consider where we're interpreting um, and looking at things so that we can't just isolate and go, hey, this is the most important thing. We're going to stick with this. We have to look at how the church over the history of the last 2,000 years has looked at that issue and interpreted it. In terms of um, women's dress, we have to look at what was the cultural context, what was Paul trying to say in that time, and therefore, how do we apply it today? What was happening in 1 Corinthians? Were women cutting their hair for some reason that was not what, what was good for the culture, or was it an absolute rule? Those are difficult questions. The other one that really sticks out in my mind, I used to go to a Mennonite brother in church. Yeah. And they believe that dancing, MBs, no dancing, period, because they feel or they believe scripture says that da dancing leads to um, flirtation and, and sexual innuendo and all yeah. of that. Yet, what I read when I'm reading the New Testament, the Lord says to dance in joy of the Lord. Yeah. And that's a good one. The old joke, you know, like, why do Mennonites not believe in premarital sex? Because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> okay. And that was recorded. Right? Oh, sorry to you Mennonites out there. <laughs> okay. That's I don't give you so Those are good uh, questions. I'm going to move on because I don't have tons of time left and I've got uh, a couple more genres to go. So, uh... <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to prophecy. So as I get deeper and deeper into this, none of these are going to get any easier, and that's the hard thing about Old Testament, the Old Testament, right? So what do you think about when you think about the Old Testament prophets? What comes to your mind? Crazy. Anything else? Yeah, like an angry fire and brimstone. Anything else? Always warning the people to repent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, a couple times my home group has said, let's do an Old Testament prophetic book when we study it. And so, you know, I'll say, okay, and then we start, and it's like, oh, so much. Every week we can't do fire and brimstone this week. But there, <laughs> there Very is... Very black and white. Yeah, they are. They're, and the pro prophetic books are some of the most difficult parts of the Bible to interpret and or to read with understanding. So they are difficult places to read and understand and to figure out what does that mean to me today for sure so I'm going to just ha try and give you some little tips so there's 16 prophetic books there's four major prophets and 12 minor prophets does anyone know well, who are the four major prophets Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah Jeremiah, Jeremiah Daniel one more Ezekiel right so those are the four major prophets is there anyone here who, who did like Sunday school songs and can do the 12 minor prophets? 
<laughs> but it's Amos, Hosea, Malachi. Those are the minor prophets. They're found at the end. And pro the prophetic literature is primarily from 760 BC to about 460 BC. The prophets came along after David when things started to go downhill. Again, there were prophets around beforehand. Deborah was a prophet. Nathan was a prophet. But when we talk about the prophets, we're talking about from um, Isaiah down to Malachi. So when we think of prophecy, sometimes we think about the future, what's going to come, right? The, if we read the prophets, we'll be able to figure out when the end times are, when's gonna, what's going to happen, or they're going to predict who Jesus is. So Doug Stewart estimates that 2% of the prophecies of the Old Testament are messianic. So 2% of them point to Jesus. 5% of them, or less than 5%, talk about the new covenant age, which is the age we're living in. And only 1% concern events to come in our age. So very little of the Old Testament prophecy is going to tell us when Jesus is going to return. That's not the focus of Old Testament prophecy. Most of Old Testament prophecy was focusing on what was going wrong in their age. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but it means that wh how, what we learn from it will not be what's going to come. It's going to be, wow, God really cares about the covenant and people keeping the covenant. So the prophets, what, what were the prophets? The prophets were covenant enforcers. So they... Remember the covenant, the blessings and the curses? The prophet's job was to come along and say, hey, you guys aren't keeping the stipulations. You're not keeping the rules. What's going on? So they were there to come and to remind Israel that they needed to keep the covenant. That was one of their big purposes. It wasn't there. The prophets weren't speaking their own message, but they were speaking God's message. So God would tell the prophets what to say, and they would say it, and that's called an oracle. The oracle is God saying, thus says the Lord. It's an oracle. God told them what to say. And lastly, their message is not original. It's unoriginal. They weren't coming up with new material, new stipulations, new covenants. They were just saying, hey, God already said this. We need to do it. So that when you look at their message, it's repeating what the Israelites already were supposed to know and had already been told. So how do we understand prophecy? How do we, and sorry, my, my slide didn't look like this when I originally made it. It's making me sad. So <laughs> David did something evil after I emailed it to him. Because <laughs> my slides look fine. Yeah, he totally distorted mine. So when trying to understand prophecy, what is our exegetical task? What do we need to do? First of all, I think we need to recognize that we need outside help. If there's ever a part of scripture where we can't actually do it on our own, this would be one part. So even though David will say, you know, people in Vietnam with only their Bibles, they can still read prophecy and God can still speak to them through it. But it's going to be very hard for them to correctly uh, interpret it without outside help. Because it's just difficult material. So first of all, you need to know the historical con context of it. Now, the great thing is we actually have a lot of the historical context. So, for instance, Isaiah, he's prophesying in, you know, 700 B.C. We can go back and read 2 Kings and find out what was going on. And, you know, we'll meet some of the kings along the way as Isaiah talks. And so we can know some of the historical con 
context for sure. The prophets that, were, that came after the exile ended, we can read what happened. So we can read Nehemiah and we can read other books like that, Ezra, to figure out what was going on. But we do need to know the historical context. What was going on in the life of the people of Israel that these prophets needed to come and enforce the covenant? Okay, secondly, it's important to figure out what, what are individual oracles. So as I said, oracles were thus says the Lord. And so what will happen is, so a prophet would go out and prophesy and some scribe would write, oh, yes? Yeah. They're about what's actually happening at the time. Yeah. And some of those might be overlapping those two, five, and one, two. So, um, so back to the isolation of ind- individual oracles. It's important to understand because what they did is they collected them and they wrote them down in a book. So Amos is. Amos might have given, you know, 500 prophecies, but 20, you know, 40 of them are written in, in the book of Amos that we actually have, and they just stick them all together. So it's important to know, like, Amos said this all together. This is a different oracle. He might have given this three months later, but the text doesn't always give us a clue of when it was said and what was said. And so that's part of the job is to figure out, do you just want to get one at a time to look at? So if you have your Bibles, flip to Amos 5. And you'll be able to see in Amos 5 that if you, who, does anyone have the King James Version here that they're looking at? So if you do have the King James Version, none of the oracles are isolated. It's just going to be all written down in one long line. If you're online, you can see that if you go online and look at the KJV. Does the ESV have individual oracles, Dave, are you there? I know the NIV does. Yeah, I think the ESV. So what the interpreters have done is they have gone in and said, hey, this Amos said this, and then this is another oracle, he said this, and they'll split it up for you. They usually put uh, subject headings in there for you to help you. But if you go to the King James Version, it'll just list them all together. So you won't even be able to isolate the individual oracles if you're reading the King James. So pick a translation when you're looking at prophecy that helps you figure out what was said at what time? Because again, they could be months apart. They could be a hard. It's just hard to tell unless your Bible helps you with that. Are they in um, um, order, like Judgment and Israel's name, or Judgment and Judah? That's not. They might be. Ones. They might not be. I mean, we don't even know that much. We can't know. Well, Amos is hard. Amos is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Amos is difficult. So. Um, it's also important to know what kind of prophetic utterance it is. And if I had lots of time today, I would actually go through each prophetic kind of prophetic utterance and give you an example. But we don't have one, but I'm going to give you a few. There, for instance, one prophetic utterance is called a lawsuit. And so the lawsuit would be like, you, it would be given in the form of like, he's going to court, he's the lawyer, and he's explaining what all Israel has done wrong. That's called a lawsuit oracle. So you'll be able to identify that. It's very legal language. There's also a woe oracle. Do you remember Jesus used a woe oracle in the New Testament? Where did he do that? Anyone remember? In Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And so that's another type of oracle where you're just like chewing people out and uh, (laughs) telling them everything they did wrong. Um, There's an enactment oracle. Does anyone know what an enactment oracle is? 
That's where you actually act out what is going to happen. So remember Isaiah had to run around naked for a long time? <laughs> he was, that was an enactment oracle. You wouldn't want God to give you that one. Okay, this is your job. Or I didn't, didn't Jeremiah to cook, his own dung, cook food over his own dung or something like that. Those are enactment oracles where the prophets actually had to do something that was really... Hosea. Hosea, yeah, had to marry or keep, take his wife back. Uh, like God had to take Israel back. So those are the ones that were people, the prophets actually demonstrate something about what's going on. Um, so there's, there's a different kinds of prophetic utterances. Uh, a couple others are pro- promised ones where God will promise something that will happen if they obey and if they turn back to the covenant. Um, there's also messenger speech. So the prophet would come like a messenger to a king and the prophet would come to the people. Like, does anyone remember a prophet who did a messenger kind of prophet? Like Jonah. He was this messenger from far away. He came to Nineveh. He gave this speech. If you repent, you'll be saved. And then that was kind of his only job. So, so the, figure out what kind of prophetic utterance is. So for the enactment one, you know, if you were crazy and kind of thought, well, this is how a Christian should live, you know, it's not. It's very specific about what's going on at that time. <laughs> Don't follow those ones. And then finally, remember, most of the oracles are given in poetry. Most of them are poetic. So I was, when I studied Hebrew, my first probably year and a half, we studied Hebrew narrative and we translated it and it was really nice and easy. And then it's like, okay, now we're moving to the prophets. And that was so hard to translate. It was, I mean, again, I'm sure if you've been doing it for 40 years, you're going to be better than one. But the language is very metaphorical. It's very elevated. The words that are used are not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's very difficult to translate. And remember parallelism. When you're looking at Hebrew poetry, remember A and what more is B. You're going to see that again in there. So that kind of language. Okay. So I want to explain this. So here's a couple things to keep in mind. The first one is when you think of the prophet as a foreteller of the future. This is a diagram that um, tries to explain it. So if you look at the circle... If you were looking head-on at a prophecy, you would say, this is the prophecy's fulfillment. You look at the circle. Then look on the side. If the circle was flipped onto its side, you would see two fulfillments. Does that make sense? So this one, I'm going to come up here. This may be the first fulfillment of the prophecy, and this may be the second fulfillment if you change the angle. So if you're looking at this prophecy, the virgin will... um, you know, be a child and give birth and you will call the son Emmanuel. There was a first fulfillment in the book of Isaiah. And then obviously a second fulfillment in the life of Jesus. There's always a first fulfillment. Because keep in mind, if a prophet didn't have a fulfillment, he was a false prophet, right? So every prophecy in the Old Testament would have had a fulfillment at that time. There's a few prophecies that would be messianic that would have been fulfilled later on in Jesus. Or in the new age, in the age to come. Does that make sense to you guys? So, so often the, we'll think of this prophecy as having one fulfillment, but it always, if it had a later fulfillment, it also had a fulfillment at the time of the prophet. So with instance, the example you use with the virgin children, virgin, yeah. well, the word for virgin is, should I get into this, is young woman. Could be a virgin, just could be a young woman. 
And so some people believe Isaiah had a wife who had a baby at that point, um, but there's a belief that there was a fulfillment at that time of that as well. So. Okay, so then, so remember that there's always going to be a fulfillment at the time of the prophet, but there might be a later fulfillment in the new age. The second one is that there's, I don't know, there's, there's second meaning sometimes that New Testament writers use for Old Testament prophets. And so I'm going to give you an example of that. In, in uh, Matthew 2.15, Matthew, when Jesus goes down to Egypt with uh, Mary and Joseph, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Now if you flip back to Hosea um, 11, verses 1, does someone, can someone read that for me? When Israel was a youth, I, I think I have it memorized, but I'm not 100% sure. So whoever gets to Hosea 11 first, can you read it? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Keep reading a little bit. The more they, uh, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Okay, so the original prophecy is of a failed Israel who came out of Egypt because they were rescued by God. You remember Egypt was a sign of, this is what I've done for you. And then this is a prophecy where Hosea is saying, you guys have failed. God called you out of Egypt, you've screwed up, you haven't followed me. And Matthew picks that up in, in Matthew 2 and says this is a sign that Jesus was, was the Messiah because he's going back down to Egypt. And so the second meaning of that prophecy is very different than what Hosea originally was att- intending it to be used for, which was a judgment oracle. And so I think, again, just wanting to let you know that sometimes the New Testament won't follow our rules of what was the author's original intention. Be aware of that. So some of the prophecies in the New Testament are going to pick up a second meaning that the original prophet never had in, in their text. And that's a surprise for us, but just be aware that that will happen. Okay, I'm going to move on, and there will be a time for questions later. I'm on my last section, which is not going to be any easier than the last two. So (laughs) we move why the Old Testament is hard to interpret. So we're going to move into wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is right living, how to live wisely. And it's primarily found in Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. But some of the Psalms are wisdom literature, and also some of the Song of Songs is wisdom literature. So particularly Ecclesiastes and Job are difficult literature to interpret, for sure. And so I've actually given you a couple of resources there that are in your notes. You can purchase like Bruce Waltke's uh, lectures on wisdom literature. He's amazing. He was one of my professors. I mean, you can't get much better than... And there's also a free article from FF Bruce online that you can get if you just type that in. The fear of the Lord is being in wisdom. You will get... You'll find FF Bruce's article, which is very good as well. So let's try and understand... Wisdom literature. Just let me look. Okay. I okay. So I thought I changed this, but I didn't. I'm gonna. I added another slide, but it's not in there. So first, I want to say that wisdom literature, like any other New Testament literature, has been abused or misused. So the first one, which David mentioned already, is picking and choosing little bits of of the wisdom literature as promises for you. So 
we did have a promise box sitting on our dining room table when my mom became a Christian when I was a teenager and she would pull out those little verses and read them and it was very encouraging to her but they were totally out of context so if you pull out a proverb like raise a Lord raise a child up in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it that's not a promise so it's not going to help you with your little promise box doesn't mean it's it's likely to happen but it's not a promise that it will happen so that don't you don't pick and choose little bits of the proverbs to make promises for yourself um, there's it's easy another misuse of wisdom literature is to misunderstand the terms like who are the wise and who are the foolish there's some people who've interpreted the foolish as the mentally handicapped and so they've avoided mentally handicapped people because they're foolish and they shouldn't hang out with them well, of course, the foolish is someone who doesn't honor God, who doesn't know God, who doesn't love God, likely not the mentally handicapped who tend to have better, more stronger face than most of us. So, uh, and then the other one, which actually David mentioned as well, is failing to follow the argument. So, for instance, taking the book of Job, picking out some kind of, chap, some kind of quote in there and using it, most, a lot of the book of Job is false wisdom. And it's, it's contrasting true wisdom of who God is to false wisdom that was going around. So all of Job's friends are spouting false wisdom about God. So if you don't follow that argument and you start pulling out parts of Job's friends' speeches, you're going to be getting it wrong. Because that, that's the point of the book of Job, to say, these guys are wrong, here's what God is like. That, and Ecclesiastes, too, people pull things out of a time to be born and a time to die. Is that, does that mean God has set out the full length of our life, so there is a time to be born and a time to die? Or does it say that life is full of futility? Which is more what Ecclesiastes is talking about, right? So you, Ecclesiastes is the meaninglessness of life, so you have to know that as you read it, so you don't pull out little bits and pieces and use it for something else. Okay, so how do you understand wisdom literature then first? First... You have to read the whole. So for Job, you have to read the whole book to be able to understand the parts of the book. Same for Ecclesiastes, especially those two books. You cannot take parts of them, you have to take the whole. And even Proverbs you have to do that with, because some Proverbs are saying actually the opposite of another proverb. So you have to actually understand the whole before you can understand the parts. You need to know what the meaning of wisdom is. Who Can anyone say what, what it means to be wise? From a biblical point of view, can someone say it louder? Fear of the Lord. Yeah. So a wise person can make a wise. They make godly choices. They think and act according to the truth. They're rightly oriented towards God. It's not about IQ or how much you know. That's not a wise person. It's a person who lives responsibly, who lives under the rule of God, who honors God. Okay. So that's very important to know. Also, again, we come back to poetry. The Proverbs, uh, the wisdom literature is mostly written in poetry. The book of Job, the epilogue, and the, and the, well, the beginning and the end, they are narrative. The rest of the book of Job is poetry. Ecclesiastes is poetry. The Proverbs are poetry. So what do we need to remember about poetry? Parallelism, right? So again, we're looking at parallelism. It uses acrostics. And some of the psalms do this as well. Does anyone know what acrostics are? Like, M, remember the song Mother? M is for the milling thing she gives me. That's how acrostics are. They usually start with A and go down to, to um, what's the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet? A, left, 
Uh-oh. <laughs> That's how long since I've been reading my Hebrew. Anyways, it started A, go to the end, and it would be showing the totality of God from the beginning to the end. Um, they use um, they use alliteration, so again, words that sound the same, and lots of metaphorical language. So it's poetry, it's to be read very differently than narrative, it's elevated language. So pro- Proverbs, in many ways, don't focus on theological or historical issues. They're actually memorable sayings. So kind of English, we have ones like, look before you leap. Right? They, they use sound, they help you remember them, so they're kind of pithy sayings. Um, in Proverbs 16.3 it says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Is that a promise? No, because that, you know, it would be easy to say, well I prayed about it, and I felt right about it, and so I did it, and it failed. Where was God? That He didn't fulfill His promises. It's like it's a good recommendation, right? You would be smart to commit your hands to the Lord if you want success, but it's not a promise. So you need to understand what pro- Proverbs are. They're pithy sayings that sound good to remind us of truths. Okay, so I'm going to talk about some hermeneutical guidelines for Proverbs. So again, just to repeat that, Proverbs are not legal guarantees from God. God isn't going to necessarily... So, Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Does anyone know proud people who still have a house? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, But he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. You know, interesting, one of uh, IJM's main works in Africa is to actually put boundary stones around widows because they're losing their property when their husbands die. So, again, that's not necessarily happening. That would be right and good if that happened, then that would be ultimately what God's intention is, but it's not a guarantee. Secondly, Proverbs must be read as a collection um, of a whole. So you have to read the whole thing together. So don't just pick one little proverb and read it a day. Like You, you should read it a large section because you're trying to get a context of it. And especially in Proverbs, don't equate don't focus on the material promises. Equate wealth to wisdom or wealth to success. And I wonder if some of those health and wealth people that David talked about in uh, the 80s and 90s were using the Proverbs in a wrong way, trying to think they were going to be rich if they followed this, this wise advice. Some Proverbs need to be translated to be appreciated. So they don't necessarily, we need to try and understand what they mean. My daughter, when she was like eight or nine, maybe was was memorizing scripture for Sunday school because she'd get prizes. And so we were all sitting around for breakfast one day, and I don't know, the kids were fighting, and it was like one of those conflict-filled mornings. And she said, ah, I get it. Better a morsel of bread than a house full of feast, or better a morsel of bread with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. And uh, <laughs> so for her, that problem made no sense until she was in the middle of this conflicted breakfast and then realized what it was trying to say. So for many of us, like as we live it out, as we see it, it'll make sense to us. And many of the problems talk about situations that no longer exist, like kings and you know rooftops that we don't have anymore. And so you have to translate them and try and understand how do they fit. So back then, what was that talking about? How would that principle fit with now. Okay. I think that's... So, can I take... Do I have any time for questions? Or should I end? Yeah, why don't you take five minutes. Okay, so five minutes... Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. 
You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.